Lately, I've been hearing this phrase recur over and over again, the smartest person in the room. Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, I, seemingly, I can't read an article, can't listen to a podcast, can't watch some interview without hearing that. And it's in all contexts. It's in the context of any kind of political discourse or, or some kind of policy wonk person. They're the smartest person in the room. Or it's uh, some... Uh, artist who's the, just because they're so creative, they're, they're above where everybody else is. They're the smartest person when they come into the room. Or in our technological Silicon Valley area, there's plenty of people that seemingly qualify for the phrase, the smartest person in the room. And I, when I think about that, I think, well, that's interesting. I, I mean, we do need people that are smart, but knowledge doesn't necessarily lead to right decisions and right actions. But it is something that consistently gets elevated in our culture, and often, if we're honest, in our own minds. So I hear that phrase. Another thing that I see going on at the same time is the idea that, that it is my emotions that really are going to help me navigate through the challenges and issues in this life. The stronger I feel about something, the more I need to act upon it. And emotions are important and feelings are important to kind of understand who we are and maybe what the next step is for a career or a conversation that we have to have at work with a colleague or a way to navigate a tricky relational development. So emotions are a part of that. Being knowledgeable is a part of that. But each independent and by itself will be insufficient for truly understanding how we ought to live the life that God has for us. Knowledge without wisdom isn't going to necessarily help us take the wise and fruitful next step. Emotions without wisdom could actually cause us to make decisions that we later regret. And when I think about those, those two things, that, that premium on being really smart and, and the power of emotions that are so prevalent in our culture right now, I want to make a case. I want to shout out and kind of reclaim the idea of wisdom. And this is what our texts point us to. It's a very biblical concept. It's something that I think in, in ancient times of people who lived in Bible times or even in the Greco-Roman world could come to this time. They would be astounded at the level of investment that we put into emotions in terms of understanding and determining what we say, what we do, how we act, or in knowledge. The, the Greeks and the Romans prized knowledge, but they, it wasn't the only thing. They prized wisdom. And, and that's not just them. That's very much the Hebrew culture, the Middle Eastern culture. It's why we read or why one of our readings was Proverbs 8. But this idea of the importance of wisdom and its central role in living a life that is meaningful, has purpose, is minimizing the things that can get the joy of life off of track. That's what that helps us make wise decisions, that helps a life bear fruit. This is what James has in mind. And in the text that was just read in the epistle, James has two versions of wisdom that he wants to present to us. One is of God, and one is of this world. He starts with the question, who is wise and understanding among you? 
Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, and the inverted uh, quotation marks are not in the original Greek, but that is the text. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. And James is speaking from that ancient and biblical Hebrew tradition of wisdom. It's why he would have in mind Proverbs 8 that we, we read, that to understand wisdom the way James does it is to understand that wisdom was present at the creation of everything that we can see and experience. That wisdom is so much a, a part of God's handiwork, if you will, that it, it is described with a persona in Proverbs 8. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at, ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be. And so wisdom, a shorthand way to think of it, it is the way to understand the world, the way that the world was created to be, and to understand our lives in the context of that creation and the creator who made it. So there is a way to live that brings life and brings benefit, and brings blessing. That's the wisdom that James is advocating and speaking. At the same time, there is a wisdom of the world that purports to bring those same things, but instead brings every evil practice and brings disorder. In the Old Testament, it's often called folly. If you read Proverbs, the wisdom is, is, is contrasted against folly. But James has this in mind, and wisdom is so valued, so prized. You, you might be thinking of Solomon, whose one request to God as a young king is, Lord, give me a heart of discernment. I, I cannot possibly rule this people. I'm young. I'm inexperienced. I'm everything a king probably shouldn't be, except I'm related to the right guy. David was my dad, and so I'm the king. But I need wisdom in order to do this well. And the Lord is so pleased with that that he says, I will give you a heart of wisdom and discernment. You did not offer, you didn't ask me for riches. You didn't ask me to knock off your enemies. You asked for something that is necessary for life to thrive and for justice to be done. That's the context of, of Solomon's request. And out of that place of wisdom comes all the blessing that the kingdom of Israel would later experience. This is, if you will, our background. And so James has the two pieces uh, so he comes from wisdom from that context. He contrasts it with the challenges that seemingly are wise, but really are the results of, in James's calling out specifically, and this is in the church, by the way, envy and selfish ambition. Envy is that sense of somebody is something, I, somebody is the kind of person I want to be. In fact, I really want to be them. Uh, think of, you know, th this is a recurring theme in literature and history, the Grimm's fairy tales. They, they were the ones, by the way, that started Snow White. But the, the evil queen, she, she is so envious of Snow White. But she cannot be Snow White. She cannot be the fairest of the land. And so she seeks to destroy her. This is a theme that Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices, picks up. She writes a book, 
explaining for our time the seven deadly sins that the church spoke of in medieval times, of which envy was clearly one. Envy is that sense, as I said, of I want to be something, somebody else other than who I am. And when you think about that, logically, you cannot be that person. And so it's its own prison, if you will. But envy does that and propels the envious person to do all kinds of things that are ultimately destructive. I mentioned Snow White. She mentioned Salieri. If you know the play Amadeus or the movie Amadeus, he's so consumed with envy for the talent of Mozart. And he can't be Mozart. He can only appreciate the genius of Mozart, which is, you know, the, the burden that he bears. And so he seeks to destroy him. That is the toxicity, if you will, of envy. And the real problem with it from the Lord's perspective is it is saying to the Lord, I don't like who you've made me to be. I don't want the, the destiny and the vocation that you've given me. I don't want to wrestle with the things that are hard or the experiences that I've had. I want to be somebody else completely. And the Lord says, you're missing out. You can never be that person. You can only be the person that I've ordained you to be. I've only made one of you. I've only made one of you. I've only made one of you. It's only made one of me. And so envy has that. It's a thief in so many ways. And, and so James says, you know, don't be envious. If you're envious and you're operating out of that, there's nothing but disorder and every kind of evil practice. He says, don't have selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is often the engine. Envy might be the spark, but then selfish ambition is what drives that forward, what propels it forward. Now, we can think in our culture, maybe in our own lives, in our experience, any number of people that would exhibit selfish ambition. But we actually don't have to go too much farther than the 12 disciples in the gospel reading that Cindy read. I mean, I, we never get a sense of Jesus rolling his eyes when he's with his disciples. But you can only imagine as he's on his way to Jerusalem for what will be the ultimate showdown with evil, what will be, as we know, thankfully, our, our sense of success and the fact that death is defeated because what Christ will do. And on the way to this really important and significant series of days in the life of Christ, the 12, the chosen, are arguing about which of them is the greatest. Like, I don't know what Jesus is saying, but, but these are people that, are, that have selfish ambition on display. I don't know if there was an envy piece going on, but selfish ambition, that sense that I need to be something for myself, that sense that I can only be happy in this life if I am better than someone, selfish ambition. And he uses that, thankfully for us, as a teachable a moment to say who are the greatest. Those that are the greatest are not those that are self-focused, but those that are very much in touch with the fact that they are the least. If you belong to the Lord, who was a servant, who washed his disciples' feet, you are also or following in the way of the cross. You're recognizing that that's the Lord that you serve. He washed their feet. We too are called to do the same. It is a life of being the least of being a servant of all. And so envy and selfish ambition, I don't, that would find us at some place because we all have this. We, we might think that the, the case that James is making is pretty severe. And yet we do have vestiges of this. When we think 
don't we? I mean, maybe, maybe it's just me. But I, I still, <laughs> places where I think of that, well, you know, what, what do pastors and ministers get envious about? Other pastors and ministers, <laughs> churches, size, all kinds of things that, that just are, are ways to sort of measure how am I doing? But that whole thought process is the wrong thought process. The, the correct one is, whom am I serving? The Lord, whom am I loving? Lord, work with me in that. And so this finds me very much in the place of needing to let go of any envy or selfish ambition. And the same can be true, I'm sure, for many of us as we just look at what's going on at work or what's going on in relationships. Uh, maybe you find yourself with certain friends more on the competitive side of things than on just the grace side. And on the, I just enjoy your company, whether you're, I'm beating you in a round of tennis, a round of golf or a tennis match or not. Remember, when we think about how to navigate through this, we don't do so alone. Corinthians says that Jesus himself is our wisdom. It says that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So when we need wisdom, we just, in whatever situation that we're in, Lord, because wisdom fundamentally is known by the decisions that it produces. And so when we are faced with a decision, then we have to say, Lord, what do I do? See, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but it doesn't require you to act. Wisdom is what propels you to act in a way that is consistent with the Lord. And so we turn to him and we say, Lord, what should I do in this situation? How should I respond there? We don't rely on our emotions because they oftentimes can get us into trouble. If you're, you know, it doesn't matter what situation, again, whether with colleagues, parents, neighbors, at some point, all of them are going to kind of work your nerves for whatever reason and for however long. And if we just relied on emotions to propel us to an action without stopping and saying, Lord, what's the wise thing to do? What's the thing that's going to honor you and glorify you? We're in danger of disorder and every evil practice. And so we want to be and we are called to be people who walk in wisdom. Proverbs 28, 26 says this, those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. Just a few ways that I have found helpful and, and I'm sure you have as well, but they, they're worth calling out. When faced with a decision, when desiring to know how the Lord would lead each of us in a particular situation that we would be facing. It's, and, and not to be hasty about it, but to be deliberate. It's important to be refreshed by the, the numerous stories of wisdom in Scripture. Yeah, you know, they're, they're all over the place, but part of the reason that they're in there is so that we would be encouraged about walking in wisdom and discouraged from walking in foolishness. Who walks in wisdom? Think of the Old Testament. Here's, here's Daniel, who is essentially part of a an slave MBA program in Babylon. He's one of the bright guys, but he's now in captivity. And he, you know the story about him being asked to eat at the king's table, eat the king's food, actually. And he says, no, because it's not kosher. And he says he, he is, his wisdom is to honor God and to let the consequences fall. But he's wise enough in his approach to the steward and just says, I have an alternate idea. Here's an alternative. I'll just eat vegetables, if you don't mind. Me and my pals will have, will be 
don't know if it's full vegan, but at least vegetarian. And then test it out. 10 days later, see what happens. And you know the rest of the story. They look better than the rest of the guys because they honored God. A story of a man walking in wisdom. And that's throughout his career, if you read Daniel. Then there's Saul, the appointed and anointed king by Samuel, you know, chosen by God to be Israel's first king, who at some point doesn't ceases to walk in wisdom and walks in foolishness. When he decides to usurp the role of Samuel, offers the sacrifice himself, the kingdom is lost at that moment. The prophecy comes to him. There's numerous stories, and in the, and in the New Testament as well. They're there for a reason, that we might be encouraged to walk in wisdom and discouraged from walking in foolishness. Go read these stories. Pray. James 1, we didn't get to look at in our lectionary text. Remember, when you encounter trials of various kinds and you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously and without finding fault. But trust that when, he, when you ask, he will give you wisdom. And when he gives you wisdom, it's not for the knowledge bank that, you're, that you have. It's, not, it's to act upon it and trust that you're doing the right thing. Just a little sidebar on that. Wisdom is proved right by her children, says Jesus, which means that sometimes we take a step very much in faith, not knowing what the results will be. And maybe not seeing that we, the full results of the steps we take in wisdom won't be known until eternity. But oftentimes, even in our own life, they may be known far later than when we take them. So pray, ask the Lord for wisdom. And then finally, seek counsel. Proverbs says, in the abundance of counselors, there's victory. I, I think sometimes we just try to wing it or do it on our own. It's like, it's me and the Lord. We're so tight. I will just pray. He will give me what I need. Ta-da. <laughs> and the reality is, there are situations where, and many more than we actually probably care to admit, where we need a trusted friend to ask us hard questions about what we would like to do, who aren't just there to sign off on what we'd like to do, but are going to ask us questions that uncover motivations, that questions that will reveal, is this selfish ambition or is this of God? One of the tests is, how do, can I hold this opportunity Let's assume it's an opportunity at work or a promotion. Can I hold this opportunity with an open hand? If it doesn't come to me, am I still going to be okay? Or, or do I want it so badly that I'm not quite sharing everything in the interview, not telling all the bad stuff, not, you know, I'm trying to convince myself and my friends that this is really good because I want it. I need friends that are going to ask me hard questions about my motivations. In the abundance of counselors, there's victory. Read our story, the stories that God so generously provides about wisdom, its role, its preventative blessings in our lives, as well as allowing us to move forward in the life that God has for us. Seek godly counsel when we come to places that need decision. Do pray, because he will reveal that. Let me close with Ephesians 1. This is Paul's prayer for his church. And this is my prayer for me and our, my prayer for us. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. If we would put wisdom at the top of what fuels us beyond just the desire for knowledge, beyond having to respond to emotions, knowing that wisdom has its source in Christ, our wisdom itself, knowing that he will give us what we need as we ask him and as we follow up in faith, we will have a life that reflects 
Paul's prayer. We will have a, a life that shows that we have been walking with the spirit of wisdom that he so generously gives. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.